beautiful songs, and we appreciate your being here today to participate in lifting up our voices together to, uh, to worship the Lord. Good to see everyone here today. <clears throat> Last Sunday, we talked about four reasons why you should believe the Bible, uh, discussing that, that whole question of uh, whether or not the Bible is believable and why you should believe the Bible. The four reasons that I gave were, first of all, the Bible's history, and second, it's honesty about even the failings of its major characters. The third one was the consistency of the story that it tells from beginning to end. And then the fourth one was the Bible's positive influence wherever it has gone. And uh, this morning, I want to talk about another reason, and this is the best reason of all why you should believe the Bible. The best reason of all to believe the Bible is Jesus himself. From the beginning to the end, the Bible is a book about Jesus. That's what this book is about. That's what it reveals us. That's who it reveals to us is Jesus. Now, you might be wondering, well, what about the Old Testament that doesn't directly mention Jesus, never uses the name uh, of Jesus? Is even the Old Testament about Jesus? And the answer is yes. And that starts all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. After Adam and Eve had both sinned there in the garden, and God was pronouncing the punishments upon them and upon the serpent, he said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And we know that there were times in the ministry of Jesus that Satan bruised him. He did hurt him. He did inflict pain on him. But Jesus finally crushed the head of Satan. In Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, when the people of Israel had come out of captivity in Egypt and they were, uh, had passed through 40 years in the wilderness and were about to go into the promised land, Moses went back over the law with them one more time, trying to get it into their heads. This is still the covenant with God. This is still the way he would have you to live. And one of the promises that he made to them in Deuteronomy 18, 15 was the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. There'll be another prophet like me, Moses said, and you're to listen to him. Do you remember in the New Testament when the, uh, Jesus was transfigured in the presence of Peter and James and John? The, the three apostles heard the voice of God, even though Moses and Elijah had appeared with Jesus. What did he say? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. He was that prophet like Moses. In 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 to 16, David had wanted to build a house for the Lord. And God said, I have not asked you to build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for you. And here's what he was talking about. Not a, a physical building, but a dynasty. God promised David a son, and he said, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And some of that prophecy is about Solomon because he was going to succeed his father David, but Solomon's kingdom wasn't established forever. But the kingdom of Jesus was established forever. We saw that in the book of Daniel, didn't we? Chapter 7. Uh, even in the book of Daniel, Jesus is proclaimed. Daniel sees a vision of the Ancient of Days, God himself, the one who is from eternity to eternity. 
in the Ancient of Days delivers a kingdom over to one like a son of man. And he says that is a kingdom that will stand forever. Isaiah had predicted in Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his glory, of his government, and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Isaiah foresaw that day when a son would be born to whom the kingdom would be given and everything would change. When you look at the very first page of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17, you find a genealogy of Jesus. 42 names from the history of Israel. It's not all of his ancestry, but it starts with Abraham and it goes through David and then it works its way up to Jesus and the whole idea of that, and the reason why Matthew begins his story with it, is that he is gathering up all the threads from the Old Testament about Jesus. And he's showing how all of that story in the Old Testament, all of that history, was not just about those individual people. It wasn't just about the aberrations of those families. It wasn't just about the, the doings of the people of Israel. It was all leading up to the coming of Jesus. He is the culmination of the whole story. He is the culmination of the history of the people of Israel. He is the climax and the fulfillment of everything that God was doing from the beginning right up until the time that he came. It is as Paul expressed it in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20, all the promises of God find their yes in him. Everything that God had promised in the Old Testament found its fulfillment, found its yes, found its affirmation in Jesus Christ. The four Gospels pick up the story where the Old Testament leaves off, telling of the life, the teachings, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. And then the book of Acts picks up that story. And in Acts 1.1, we read this, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, until that day when he was taken up. And then he continues the story of what Jesus continues to do and teach through the person of the Holy Spirit, inspiring the apostles, going out and spreading the message of Christ to both Jews and Gentiles. And that's what we see in the book of Acts, how the story of Jesus, the message of Christ, gradually spreads and permeates not only the Jewish world, but also the Gentile world of that day. Until finally it reaches the city of Rome, itself. Acts is followed by 21 New Testament letters which explain the significance of Jesus, what disciples of Jesus ought to believe and what we ought to do, how we ought to live. All of that is carefully explained to us in those 21 letters. They are also about Jesus. Finally, we come to the book of Revelation and it's called what? The Revelation not of John, that's the title we put on it, but the book itself says the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the story of the Lamb, the Lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world. The revelation of Jesus Christ and the one who will one day return to redeem his followers. See, the Bible is absolutely unique because Jesus 
is absolutely unique. If you ask the question, what is it that sets the Bible apart from all the scriptures of the various religions, that's the answer. The answer is Jesus. Jesus is what sets the Bible apart from all of the others. You see, the biblical view of humanity is that we are all sinners in need of redemption. And I know that some people try to deny that. I've heard people say, I'm not a sinner. I don't have any sins. I don't need to be redeemed. I'm, I'm okay. I saw a bumper sticker once that said, born okay the first time, indicating they don't need the new birth. But anybody who thinks about it honestly about their own life knows that we're all sinners. And when we recognize that we're all sinners, we recognize that we all need redemption. And any thinking person can see the corruption that is within humanity and how we need to be redeemed. And Jesus has come as the one to be that redeemer by giving his own life for us. No other scripture tells a story like that or provides a remedy for sin. No other scripture points to a savior. None of them. Let me give you some examples. You take the Quran, for instance. The Quran has no story at all. It's not a story about anything. It has the sayings of the prophet Muhammad. It offers no remedy for sin. It gives a lot of rules. And people are told that by keeping those rules, they can save themselves. And yet nobody can really save themselves. There's no savior in the Quran. The Book of Mormon is a story, and that story has Jesus in it, but he's not the Savior. Once again, people save themselves by doing good works, we're told. The Adigranth, the scriptures of the Sikh religion, is a collection of 6,000 hymns and poems. It's a mix of Buddhist and Hindu thought, and it, it teach that, teaches that souls purify themselves through a series of rebirths. Boy, that's good news, isn't it? Just get reborn over and over and over again, and finally, maybe, hopefully, you'll get it right, and you'll just disappear and not exist anymore. There's no Savior in that. The Hindu Vedas is a collection of hymns and ritual sayings and magic formulas, and it speaks of thousands of gods, even millions of gods, but not one Savior there's no savior in it. The Bhagavad Gita of Hindu of Buddhism is the epic story of the struggle between two families. That there's no savior. The struggle of those two families doesn't save anybody from sin. It doesn't redeem anybody. It doesn't give eternal life to anybody. It doesn't even claim to. In none of these is there the revelation of a savior. None of them offers a remedy for sin. You see, what we need most is not a philosophy, but forgiveness. We don't need rules. We need redemption. We don't need a system. We need a savior. We don't need magic. We need a Messiah. And that's what the Bible tells us about, is about that savior. Deep down, every one of us knows that that's what we need, that that's who we need. And only the Bible reveals him to us. What the Bible reveals corresponds perfectly to your greatest need. 
That's why you ought to believe it. Because you have that need and the Bible provides it and nothing else does. But then that raises a question in the minds of many. Is the Bible's portrayal of Jesus accurate? Is it believable? Is there any reason why we should assume that this story that we read about Jesus in the Bible is really true? And here we're back to that truth question that we talked about last week. And the answer to that question is yes, it is believable. And let me give you some reasons why. First of all, the story of the Bible that it tells about Jesus is believable because the information is based on the testimony of eyewitnesses. You heard the reading from Luke 1 a few minutes ago. Luke doesn't sound like somebody making up a fairy tale, does he? He says he's aware that many others have undertaken to write the story of Jesus, and he's obviously read them because he finds them lacking somehow. And he said, it seemed good to me also to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, who was apparently some sort of Roman official, because that's how you would address a Roman official. And he talked about having consulted with the eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. Notice Luke doesn't claim to be an eyewitness, but he talked to them. And he got his information firsthand, and he talked to them and to the ministers of the word. When you look at the Gospel of John, it is written by the disciple whom Jesus loved. Chapter 21 and verse 24 says, This is, is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Who's that beloved disciple? It's John the Apostle. That beloved disciple stood at the foot of the cross and watched Jesus die. Because he was there with Jesus' mother. When Jesus said, behold your mother, and to Mary, behold your son. He was present and saw that. And then later he saw Jesus alive. And he's the one who is writing these things and his testimony is true. When the early church was going through the process of recognizing which documents among the many should be included as scripture, which should be recognized as authoritative, which ones should we take as being the standard for what we believe and for how we live, they placed a premium on one thing. They placed a premium on those documents that were written by eyewitnesses or people who were very close to them. Think about our four Gospels. Matthew was an eyewitness because he was one of the 12. John was an eyewitness because he was one of the 12. Mark was not one of the 12. And we don't know that he was an eyewitness of Jesus. But we know from the rest of the New Testament that he worked closely with Paul and later with Peter. And so he was in close contact with the eyewitnesses. Same is true about Luke. Luke was an eyewitness. There's no indication that he personally ever saw Jesus. But he traveled extensively with Paul. And remember that Jesus had appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus to reveal himself to him and commission him. So the documents are written by people who were either eyewitnesses or who had firsthand testimony from those who were. And that makes them believable. Another reason why you ought to believe these, uh, this account of Jesus is that much of the information in the Gospels was confirmed by Paul before the Gospels were ever written. Paul had said a lot of it first. First example, he talks about the preexistence of Jesus in Philippians 2. 
when he said, Have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and was born in the likeness of a man. That's the preexistence of Jesus. What does John chapter 1 and verse 1 say? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then verse 14 says, and the Word became flesh. Paul had already said that. Paul had already said that Jesus had a preexistence and then came to this earth. The Gospels portray Jesus as the Son of God. Paul had already said that in Romans chapter 1 and verse 4. He said that uh, he was, uh, testimony was born to him that he was revealed to be the Son of God in power. He wrote that years before any of the Gospels ever said it. He talked about the deity of Jesus, which the Gospels clearly reveal, for example, in that transfiguration. Because Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9 that all the fullness of God dwells bodily in Jesus emphasizing his deity. Paul talked about the institution of the, Lord, of the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Before the Gospels ever gave an account of it, Paul gave the very first account of it. And he could go on and on and on. The same information that's in the Gospels, you find essentially in Paul. He makes reference to it. He validates it. He verifies it. You see, some claim that the Gospels portrait of Jesus is what they call a later development that over time, as you got further and further from the actual life of the real person, Jesus, they say, that stories began to develop about him and that he never claimed to be deity, that he never claimed to be the, uh, the son of God, but that later people began to say that about him, that over time these things happened. But the letters of Paul prove that's not true. The letters of Paul began to be written within 20 years after the life of Jesus. There was no lengthy lapse of time for that kind of mythology to develop. We ought to believe the story that the Bible tells about Jesus because it's confirmed by Paul. The story is also confirmed by secular writers. And some of these secular writers were even hostile to Christianity. I'm talking about people like the Roman historians Tacitus and Suetonius, who certainly were not Christians and looked upon Christianity with disdain. The Jewish historian Josephus, who was in no way a Christian. The Roman emperor Trajan, who had Christians persecuted at times. All of these talk about Jesus and mention him. What kind of things do they say about Jesus? Well, you can look at these sources and they will tell you that Jesus lived in Palestine in the first century AD, which is what the Bible says. They will tell you that he was crucified by the Romans at the insistence of the Jewish religious leaders, which is what the Bible says. They will tell you that he was known as a teacher and a miracle worker, which is exactly what the Bible says. They tell you that his followers believed that he was the Messiah, which is what the Bible says. That he was worshipped as deity, as the Bible says. That his followers were called Christians, as they were in the Bible that they worshiped on the first day of the week, that Jesus had a brother named James, and on and on and on. All of that information is found in writers who did not believe in Jesus. And yet they tell the same things about him that the Bible tells. They verify what the, the scriptures say. 
You could learn all of those things that I've just mentioned and many more without ever opening the New Testament. And that is a powerful argument for its accuracy, that even secular writers were telling the same story as the Bible. Even Jesus' enemies confirmed that he was a miracle worker. Everybody knew that he was. His opponents attributed his power to Satan as they did in the New Testament. But they never denied that he had the power to heal and cast out demons. There's a collection of Jewish writings known as the Talmud that began to be made shortly after the time of Jesus, but its collection lasted for a few centuries. But it's hundreds and hundreds of pages long. It frequently mentions Jesus, but it always says the same thing. It always says that he was a sorcerer who led Israel astray. But never one time. In all the hundreds of pages of the Talmud, never one time is there a denial that Jesus worked miracles. You know why? Because everybody knew that he did. It was undeniable. They couldn't possibly persuade anybody that he didn't because it was popularly known, it was widely known that he had those miraculous powers. Those writers in the Talmud would have denied that if they could have. But it was common knowledge. It was undeniable, so they didn't even try. And then a the fourth reason to regard this record as believable is because the Gospels record some things that really were potentially problematic to the church. Some things that were kind of hard to square. Some things that were a little bit difficult to explain, particularly when you're being challenged by non-believers. Let me give you an example. Jesus being baptized by John. What do the Gospels say was the reason for the baptism of John? John's baptism, we're told, was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And yet Scripture says that Jesus was sinless. So why would he go and be baptized by John? Well, Matthew chapter 3 and verse 15 explains that. Matthew 3 and verse 15 when Jesus came to John to be baptized by him, John didn't want to do it. You remember that? He said, I, I need to be baptized by you, not, not me to baptize you. This, isn't, this is backward. And Jesus said, no, we've got to do this because it is fitting for us to do this in order to fulfill all righteousness. It is fitting for us, not just me, he said, but us to fulfill all righteousness. What was he talking about? He was saying that he was going to do everything that God wanted Israel to do. It's fitting for us to do this. God was calling all Israel to repentance. God was calling all Israel to be baptized by John. And Jesus said, I'm not going to not do what God is calling Israel to do. He wasn't a sinner, but he was willing to undergo that baptism in order, in order to fulfill all righteousness. Now, it would have been easy for the gospel writers just to have left that out, wouldn't it? They could have just left out that Jesus was baptized by John. You could pick the story up after the baptism by John or just leave that part out, and you'd still have basically the same story. Why did they tell it? Because it happened. Because it was true. Even though it created a difficulty for the early church to explain, they told that as part of the story as well. The crucifixion itself was problematic. 
because the Romans looked down on crucifixion. Most people did. As a shameful death reserved for the lowliest of criminals. How can the Son of God undergo a death like that, the death of the cross? But even more to the point, Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23, said, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. How could the Messiah possibly be cursed? Don't you know that the Jewish opponents of Christianity just love to bring up that verse? Oh, you talk about your Savior? He was crucified on a tree. He was nailed to a cross. Don't you know what Moses said in Deuteronomy 21? He's under a curse. He can't be our Messiah. He can't be our Savior. He's under a curse. Paul responds to that in Galatians 3 and verse 13. He said that he became a curse for us. He doesn't deny that he put himself under the curse of God. But he says he became a curse for us in order that we might live, in order that we might have our sins forgiven. You see, the Bible's portrayal of Jesus corresponds exactly to what you need and exactly to what I need. A Savior, a Savior to redeem us from our sins. One more thing to point out. This Jesus who is confirmed by all of this evidence in turn validates the scriptures of the Old Testament. Jesus validates the Old Testament. Now that may sound backward to you because we're accustomed to saying the Old Testament validates Jesus because of the prophecies in the Old Testament that were later fulfilled by Jesus. And that's true enough. But the thing is, we have more historical verification of Jesus himself than we do of the Old Testament. We've got the testimony of all these eyewitnesses. We've got the testimony of people who were not Christians, who were not followers of Jesus. We've got all of that enough to firmly locate him historically much more than we have for the Old Testament. So what did Jesus then say about the Old Testament? What did he think about the Old Testament? Well, when you read the Gospels carefully, you'll find that Jesus regarded the Old Testament events as factual. Look, for example, at Matthew 11, verses 20 to 24. Jesus mentions the destruction of Old Testament cities, such as Chorazin, and Tyre and Sidon because of their sinfulness, just like the Old Testament said. So he verified that those events, that those cities were destroyed because of their sinfulness. In Matthew 12, verses 1 through 8, he defended his disciples' right to pick grain on the Sabbath and eat it by referring to David when he was fleeing from King Saul going into the sanctuary at Shiloh and eating what was called the bread of the presence that was set out there as an offering. And Jesus said, haven't you read what David did? How he went into the sanctuary and he ate that bread of the presence? What's that saying? That Jesus regarded that as true. He regarded that as a factual event. It really happened. Every time Jesus talks about something from the Old Testament, he validates the historical reality of those events. But it's not just the events. It's also the teachings of the Old Testament 
that Jesus regarded as valid. In Matthew 10, when a man asked him what he must do to have eternal life, what did Jesus say? He said, keep the commandments. And then he quoted six out of the 10 found in Exodus 12 or Exodus 20. He quoted six out of the 10 commandments as examples and said, you know the commandments, live by these, keep these. What does that tell you? That he regarded those commandments as entirely valid. Mark chapter 12, verses 24 to 27. He chided the Sadducees because they didn't know their scriptures. They came to him with a foolish story about a woman who'd been married to seven brothers in succession. And then they asked him the question, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? And Jesus said, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Haven't you ever read where the scriptures say, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. When did God say that? I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. When he spoke to Moses out of that burning bush. Oh, even something amazing as that. Jesus said, yes, that happened. Yes, that's who God is. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God of the living not the God of the dead. All through his life, Jesus displayed a profound respect for the Old Testament scriptures. In Luke 4, when Satan kept coming to him over and over trying to tempt him, what did Jesus say? It is written. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Quotes the book of Deuteronomy. It is written, he said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Quoting Deuteronomy again. It is written, he said. Over and over, he just keeps saying, it is written, and keeps quoting from the Old Testament scriptures. Why? Because he had profound respect for them. He believed they were true. He knew they were the word of God. And in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 17 to 19, he said that he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He didn't come with a disdainful attitude toward the law. He didn't come toward the, to the law saying the law is useless. You can just throw it aside. He said, I didn't come to abolish it. I came to fulfill it, he said. So this Jesus, who is so well attested by history, did himself attest to the truthfulness and validity of the Old Testament. And so the bottom line is that we have every reason to believe the Bible's message is true mostly because it's the book of Jesus. It's the book of Jesus. Let me ask you a question. Are you a sinner? Do you need a savior? Do you recognize the truthfulness of the answer to those two questions determines your eternal destiny? The answer to those two questions is yes, and it is the truth. Then you have every reason to believe the Bible. You should believe it. You must believe it in order to have life everlasting. And what does the Bible tell you to do then? Trust Jesus. Believe the story of his life, his death, his resurrection. Turn away from sin. Be baptized into him. Be united with him. Live your life for him. And then spend eternity with him. That's what he offers. If you're ready to accept it.
Please come while we stand and sing.